Welcome to the Paradox Podcast. I just want to say a special thank you to all who make this podcast possible through their generosity at paradoxgiving.com. Thank you for believing in this work. We are looking at the 22nd chapter of Deuteronomy today, and this sermon is entitled The Misuse of Deuteronomy. At the beginning of today's sermon, I would like to speak to the people who are listening who identify as transgender or non-binary. Welcome. Whether this is your first time here or your 100th time here, whether you are out and open with your gender identity or you currently keep your identity to yourself, I want you to know that I am glad that you have joined us on this podcast this morning. I am glad that you are who God created you to be. And I am glad that you are part of paradox. I want you to know that if at any point during this sermon you feel that I misrepresent your experience, or if you feel that I have tokenized your identity, or even if you feel like this church is created by cisgendered people for cisgendered people, then please let me know because I am a work in progress and this church is a work in progress. And one of the primary goals of paradox is to be a church that every gender identity can call a spiritual home. Thank you for being with us here today. And to everyone else who is listening today, I want you to know that I am discussing the church's recent history and relationship with transgender and non-binary persons. To start this discussion, we need to define two terms so that we can all start on the same page. According to the new Oxford American Dictionary, transgender means denoting or relating to a person whose sense of personal identity and gender does not correspond with their birth sex. The second term that we need to define is cisgender which means denoting or relating to a person whose sense of personal identity and gender corresponds with their birth sex. For a personal example, I was assigned the sex of male at birth, and I have also always identified as a male throughout my life. Therefore, I am a cisgender male. With those terms in mind, I'd like to share a few statistics from the Pew Research Center about how the Christian religion views people who claim transgender identities. The article that delivers this data began with the conclusion that, quote, the American public is sharply divided along religious lines over whether it is possible for someone to be a gender different from their sex at birth, close quote. The most telling statistics in this research revealed that 62% of the non-religious believe that a man or woman's gender can be different from their sex at birth. In other words, nearly two-thirds of atheists and people who do not belong to a church believe that a transgender identity is a legitimate identity. But when we consider those who are inside the church, we find a nearly identical number in the opposite direction. 63% of Christians in America believe that a man or woman's gender is determined by their sex at birth. So nearly two-thirds of Christians believe that a transgender identity is not 
a legitimate gender identity. However, the closer you get to the Western white male narrative, the more the transphobia increases. When considering only white evangelical Christians, the number jumps from 63% to 84% of Christians who deny the transgender experience. We also see a religious divide when we consider what people think about society and its actions toward trans people. 57% of the non-religious people in America believe that society has not gone far enough in accepting trans people today. They believe there is much more work to be done in order to accommodate trans people as citizens. Conversely, 39% of Christians feel that society has gone too far in accommodating the lives of trans people. 39% of Christians feel that the work to be done is to go backward to the time where we used to treat transgender people with discrimination. But when speaking to white evangelical Christians, that number skyrockets from 39% to 61% who feel that society has gone too far. The survey then delved into personal relationships and found that 43% of the non-religious in America know someone who is transgender, while only 34% of Christians in America claim to know someone who is transgender as well. That number sinks nine percentage points beyond that to 25% of white evangelicals who know someone personally who is transgender. All of these statistics tell us that there is a sharp divide between how cisgendered Christians view transgender persons and their place in society compared to how cisgender persons outside of the church see the same people. This data would lead one to the logical hypothesis that there must be a plethora of verses in scripture that condemn transgender identities. We can almost hear those white evangelical voices confidently asserting that the Bible is clear on the topic of gender. So here at Paradox, we listen to people who claim that the Bible is clear about certain things, and we take that assertion very seriously. Which means that today, we are going to look at every verse in the entire Bible that talks about transgender identities. We will meticulously go through each and every passage that addresses the trans experience. We will dive deeply into the context of each word so that we can better understand what every one of these authors was truly commenting on in order to gain a better understanding of the inspiration behind Scripture. And whether those verses condemn trans lives or condone trans lives, we are going to study all of those verses today. So I want to invite you to settle in because we are about to go on a detailed tour through scripture and this tour will require patience. Let's begin, shall we? I want to invite all of you to open your Bibles. Now, I want to invite all of you to close your Bibles because we are done. We did it. We talked about every verse that discusses transgender identities in the Bible. And if you are listening to this podcast today and thinking, wait, we didn't talk about any verses, Craig, then I would say to you, yes, you are correct, my friend. 
because the Bible does not discuss transgender identities. This is an indisputable fact. And I hope that you find this indisputable fact to be unsettling. Because if the Bible never discusses transgender identities, then why is it that cisgender Christians are so vehemently against transgender Christians? And when we consider that question and the statistics that we looked at a moment ago, we must acknowledge that the Bible is used by cisgender Christians today to justify their hatred of transgender persons. This is happening at an alarming rate. And this misuse of scripture in this way should cause Christians everywhere to be concerned. Because the Bible is silent about transgender identities, but Christians have read into the scriptures that God is against trans persons. I want to share with you three stories today that bring this religious abuse to life. The first story takes place in 2016 in sunny Rancho Cucamonga in California. A 24-year-old named Kendall Oliver, whose preferred pronouns are they and them, heard from a friend about a new barbershop in town that specialized in men's haircuts. Kendall Oliver's friend recommended that they get a haircut at this new place. So Oliver made an appointment. They walked into the barbershop and they were stunned to see a customer who was a woman being turned away by the owner of the barbershop because of her gender. The female customer exited and the owner's eyes turned to Kendall Oliver who was standing in the doorway of the barbershop. We only do men's haircuts, the owner said gruffly. Kendall responded, great, I'm here for a man's haircut, just like the haircut you're doing on that gentleman in that chair right there. The owner shook his head. He adamantly refused to offer them a seat at the barbershop. Kendall Oliver retreated and they walked out of the barbershop angry, frustrated, and embarrassed. After some time passed, Oliver called the barbershop back and tried to explain that they identified more as a male than a female. And it shouldn't be a problem for them to want a masculine haircut. The owner responded, quote, it doesn't matter, ma'am. We don't cut any type of woman's hair, close quote. When news organizations caught wind of the story, they began asking the owner of the barbershop for an explanation of this discrimination. The owner told CBS News, quote, the Bible teaches us that a woman's hair is given to her for her glory, and I would not want to take away any of her glory from her, close quote. Whew. If you have been with us at Paradox before, you know that we always pause whenever we hear a statement like this that we heard from the barbershop owner. Whenever we hear someone say, quote, the Bible teaches us this, or the Bible says that, it's our collective responsibility as Christians to stop that person right there and ask them two important questions. Number one, where does the Bible say that? And number two, what does the Bible actually say there? Because this supposed verse that the barbershop owner quoted isn't actually in the Bible. The verse that is being misquoted is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 6, 14, and 15. 
Now, 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul, and in those verses he wrote, quote, For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved, then she should wear a veil. A few verses later, Paul writes, quote, Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is degrading to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering, close quote. So first things first, we all must admit that these verses, which are so often used to discriminate against trans people, do not say anything about being transgender. After that initial acknowledgement, one could make the argument on a very limited surface level that Paul is prohibiting all women everywhere and for all time from getting short haircuts. And Paul is also prohibiting all men everywhere and for all time from growing their hair out. This argument falls apart very quickly the moment we recognize that these verses are part of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Once we recognize that this is a complete letter that was originally meant to stand on its own and be read from beginning to end, then we can ask an all-important question. What is the thesis of 1 Corinthians? Because when we hold up a couple of random lines from a letter, without ever taking the time to read the entire letter and understand what that letter is about, then we appear to be wholeheartedly ignorant, don't we? What is the thesis of 1 Corinthians? In my opinion, the thesis of 1 Corinthians is that the people of the Corinthian church should find a way to put their differences aside and unify for the sake of the gospel. And when we accept that as the thesis of 1 Corinthians, we can then turn back to those verses in chapter 11 about hairstyles and ask ourselves another important question. Are these verses about short and long haircuts part of a larger argument that Paul is making to support his thesis? The answer in this case is yes. In fact, the letter contains five supporting arguments or points that Paul is making to support his central idea of unity. But if we don't understand how these specific verses fit into Paul's fourth supporting argument for his larger thesis, then we run the risk of doing the exact opposite of what Paul was asking the Corinthian church to do. Because these verses that we read are part of Paul's fourth supporting argument, and that supporting argument is four chapters long in the book of Corinthians. This lengthy supporting argument discusses the temptation of spiritual arrogance. The idea that my strict adherence to religion somehow makes me more valuable in God's eyes than you. Over these four chapters, Paul talks about how all women should be equal, how the rich and the poor should eat meals together, and how speaking in tongues doesn't make you better than the person next to you. And in the middle of all of that discussion on spiritual arrogance, Paul drops 1 Corinthians 13, which is one of the most eloquent passages in all of Scripture. In that passage, he tells everyone that it does not matter how spiritual or how religious or how holy you are if you do not know how to love the stranger who walks through your door. That's the point of all of this unity and all of this message that is the gospel. For Paul, learning how to love those who are not like you 
is the gospel. Which is why the discriminatory actions that unfolded in the barbershop in Rancho Cucamonga are saturated in tragic irony. Because the barber refused to offer a haircut to a human being on the basis of upholding the teachings of 1 Corinthians. The problem is the barber most likely read only a few verses as laws to enforce rather than the whole book of the Bible as a letter to comprehend. The very verses he vaguely cited to deny the haircut to Kendall Oliver were part of a larger supporting argument that asked the people in Corinth to let go of their spiritual high ground and instead welcome every human being as an image of the divine. In other words, the barber failed to do the very thing that Paul asked the Corinthian church to do in 1 Corinthians. And I hope this story can serve as a reminder that Christians should never say the phrase, well, the Bible says. Now, let's be clear. We can say Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, or the author of Genesis tells us that, or Jesus says in the Gospel of John. But whenever we kind of vaguely reference the Bible with a general citation, we end up paraphrasing the words and truncating the inspiration behind the text. So I'm asking all of us to stop saying, well, the Bible says. I'm also asking all of us to call out other Christians around you who say, well, the Bible says. Interrupt them and ask them, where does it say that? And what does it actually say there? Which brings us to the second story, which revolves around a conservative organization called Focus on the Family. Now, this one hits a little close to home for me because I grew up absolutely loving their radio production entitled Adventures in Odyssey. In hindsight, I realize how damaging those radio programs actually were because they promoted several values and ideals that I now find to be inhumane. In February of 2018, Focus on the Family felt they needed to release a statement about gender identities. In this statement, they said, quote, the church must continue to proclaim the truth of God's intentional design for marriage and sexuality. The two sexes, male and female, are created in his image. The modern, quote, transgender movement is systematically working to dismantle the reality of two sexes, male and female, as the Bible and the world have no, always known it to be, close quote. So where do we begin with this hateful and angry statement? Well, notice how this statement references the Bible without referencing anything specific in the Bible. This is a problem, and we talked about this problem in the story of discrimination that occurred in the barbershop in Rancho Cucamonga. I then want to call your attention to the line, quote, the two sexes, male and female, are created in his image, close quote. Now, I find this sentence to be painfully awkward. Because while it affirms that women are created in God's image, it states that women are created in his image. Which is a very strange pronoun to use to describe God who crafts women in her image. Wouldn't a much better way to write this sentence be the two sexes, male and female, are created in his and her image? Or we could offer another suggestion. The two sexes, male and female, are created in their image. 
But when I read the original statement, I realize that focus on the family's assertion that God created only two genders in his image is something they don't actually believe. I feel it is a safe assumption that focus on the family cannot recognize the image of God in women because they cannot recognize the femininity of God and they cannot recognize God as her. So while they try to make a big, bold statement against transgender people saying that God created only two genders in God's image, the statement is tripped up by the fact that they can only acknowledge that one gender is made in his image. Now, if someone from Focus on the Family were listening to this podcast today, I have no doubt they would say, oh, Craig, we took that line and that pronoun straight from scripture. This would be a vague reference to the first creation story that is found in the book of Genesis. In this account of creation, on the sixth day, God creates multiple men and multiple women all at the exact same time. And the author of Genesis describes the creation of humanity with these words in chapter 1, verse 27. Quote, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Close quote. Now, two things strike me when I read this verse today. The first is that the author of Genesis 1 believes in gender equality. The author suggests that God created multiple men and women at the same time, and all of those human beings are equal representations of the very image of God. Not bad for writings from the Bronze Age, huh? <laughs> the second thing that strikes me are all of the masculine pronouns in this passage, his and he. Now, we pointed out how awkward the masculine pronoun is in the focus on the family statement and how they would argue they are just following the pattern set forth in this verse. But we need to remember that in Scripture, that these pronouns are pronouns. Pronouns are important. Pronouns stand in the place of names. Names are some of the most intimate identifiers that we have. And here we have pronouns standing in the very place of the name of God. My friends, we must remember that God's name is not he. He is a pronoun. And in this passage, his and he represent the infinite name of God. I actually find this passage of scripture to be even better when we replace the pronouns in the words with God's name. We read, so God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, God created them. Male and female, God created them. Now, to take this idea one step further, I believe that if the author of Genesis was born during our era, that this author would still use pronouns, but they would be different pronouns. I believe that this author would write today, so God created humankind in their image. In the image of God, they created them. Male and female, they created them. And if this feels like I'm treading carelessly on sacred ground by all of a sudden referring to the one true God as they or by calling God she, may I kindly remind you that God's name is not he, nor was it ever meant to be. Pronouns are important because they represent our identities. Journalist Tik Milan once wrote an editorial in response to a popular male cisgender comedian 
who derided the idea that we need to go to the effort to learn someone else's preferred pronouns. In 2017, Milan, who is a transgender man, responded to this comedian. He wrote, quote, these aren't your pronouns. They belong to the person you're addressing. Using the correct pronouns isn't meant to validate someone's whimsical sense of self. It's a basic courtesy and shows respect for who someone is, close quote. What I appreciate about Milan's words are the fact that he demonstrates how learning someone's preferred pronouns is a courtesy to the person we are referring to. And when you consider that Christ gave us the commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves, I believe that the first and easiest thing that anyone can do to love a non-binary or trans person is to learn and respectfully use their preferred pronouns. And for all of the trans and non-binary person who are listening this morning, when you insist that others use your preferred pronouns, then that insistence is a revolutionary act of self-love. You are not inconveniencing the world or your family or your church when you ask them to use your preferred pronouns. Rather, you are participating in this world as a human being. For all of us, we must remember from this story that using preferred pronouns is a basic and necessary act of love. Whether these pronouns are your preferred pronouns or they are the pronouns of another, Christians should fully embrace the opportunity to validate and love themselves and also the people around them by using their preferred pronouns. The third story that I want to tell you about takes place in the greater Detroit area at a funeral home. In 2007, a funeral home hired Amy Australia Stevens under her legal name at the time, which was Anthony Stevens. While Amy was assigned male at birth and lived publicly as a man into her late 40s, she thought of herself as a girl from the time that she was a child. While she began to work at this funeral home in 2007, she came out to her wife in 2009. For the next four years, she lived a double life. At work, she played the part of a man, while at home, she lived true to her identity. But this duplicity began to weigh on her. In 2013, she wrote a letter to her employers and to her coworkers at the funeral home. She wrote, quote, I intend to have sex reassignment surgery. The first step I must take is to live and work full-time as a woman for one year. At the end of my vacation on August 26, 2013, I will return to work as my true self, Amy Australia Stevens, in appropriate business attire. Immediately, Amy Stevens' employer fired her and offered her a generous severance package on the promise that she kept quiet about the terms of her termination. Stevens refused and instead took her former employer to court. Now, the primary defense of the funeral home owner was the Bible, and Judge Sean Cox ruled against Amy Stevens and in favor of the funeral home owner. The judge later said, quote, The defendant sincerely believes that the Bible teaches that a person's sex, whether male or female, is an immutable God-given gift and that it is wrong for a person to deny his or her God-given sex. Requiring the funeral home to provide a skirt to and or allow an employee born a biological male to wear a skirt at work would impose a substantial burden on the ability of the defendant 
to conduct his business in accordance with his sincerely held religious beliefs. Close quote. Now immediately, I hope that you hear all of this ruling and ask two questions. Where does the Bible say that? And what does the Bible actually say there? Because the only verse that this ruling could derive from is found in the 22nd chapter in the book of Deuteronomy. Now here on the Paradox Podcast, you know that we are in the middle of a three-month-long sermon series in this book of the Bible. If you have joined us for the past couple of weeks, then you know that Deuteronomy contains a nearly four-hour sermon given by Moses to the children of Israel right before Moses' death. Now, the majority of this sermon is a long list of rules that Moses wants the Israelites to follow when they establish their own society in the Promised Land. Toward the end of those rules, Moses says, quote, A woman shall not wear a man's apparel, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For whoever does such things is abhorrent to the Lord your God. Close quote. Now, most cisgender Christians assume that this is a commandment which condemns transgender and non-binary persons. However, activist Elil Cruz, who attended a Christian college in Berrien Springs in Michigan, points out that this verse does not discuss transgender identities at all. He once wrote, quote, Anyone who reads Deuteronomy 22.5 and thinks it addresses transgender identities doesn't have a firm grasp on transgender identities. If anything, this verse more accurately responds to cross-dressing, not gender identity. Being trans isn't dressing in certain clothing. It's experiencing your body as a different gender than the one that you were assigned at birth. Close quote. This is an important distinction for any student of the Bible to understand. To help illustrate this distinction, I want to tell you about my son, Bodhi, who is currently four years old. I have just a few pictures of Bodhi wearing a tie, which is dress that our society has deemed to be masculine clothing. However, while I have just a few pictures of Bodhi in a tie, I have lots of pictures of my son, Bodhi, in a dress, because Bodhi absolutely loves his older sister. Now, let's be very clear about something here. Bodhi loves to wear dresses. Now, it's possible that my son is transgender or he's non-binary. And if he is, then I want him and I want everyone I meet to know that my love for him will not change in the slightest if he is transgender or non-binary. But currently, at the age of four, whenever we ask Bodhi if he is a girl, even when he is wearing a dress, he adamantly insists time and time again, that he is a boy. I point this out because my son loves to cross-dress. And while he loves to cross-dress, at this age, he also loves to identify as a boy. This is the distinction that Elil Cruz is making when he points out that Deuteronomy 22.5 is commenting on cross-dressing and is also completely silent on gender identity. I hope this story of Bodhi can help you distinguish between cross-dressing and gender identity because when we are discussing the church's relationship with trans people, we must remember that we are talking about gender identities, not cross-dressing. 
Now, at this point, one may object and say, fine, Craig, fine. Deuteronomy is commenting on cross-dressing. But look closely at the words of Moses. There is still a strong condemnation for people who cross-dress. Moses even goes so far as to say that cross-dressing is abhorrent to God. And if you raise that objection, I want you to know that I would absolutely agree with you. Deuteronomy 22.5 is a condemnation of cross-dressing. Deuteronomy 22.5 does record Moses telling the Israelites that cross-dressing is abhorrent to God. And you may wonder how on earth I can reconcile allowing my son to wear a dress when Moses himself commands that Bodhi should not wear a dress. And if that is you, I would like to ask you a question. Is God's love for Bodhi contingent on the fabric he places on his body? The answer for me is of course not. Because I believe that God's love for humanity is unconditional. And while most Christians I know would agree that God's love for humanity is unconditional, there are some Christians I know who would disagree with that statement and say, no, 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 God cannot love Bodhi when he wears a dress. You know what I would say to them? I would say to them, hey, I've got a second question for you. Is my love for my son conditional on the fabric he places on his body? And it's here that only I can answer that question. And my answer for how I feel about my son is that my love for him is not conditional based on what he wears. I love Bodhi just as much when he wears a dress as when he wears a tie. I don't feel like this is a revolutionary statement. So if my love for my son is not conditionally based on what he wears, then why on earth does any human being think that God's love for God's children is based on what they wear? To anyone who would say that God finds cross-dressers to be abhorrent, I would say, why are you believing in such a little God? I have greater love than that love you're describing from God. And if God's love is somehow lesser than the finite being that is Craig Hadley, well, then we're all screwed, aren't we? My friends, the book of Deuteronomy contains a sermon given by Moses before his death. And in this sermon, he tells the Israelites that cross-dressing is abhorrent to God. And all I can tell you this morning is that I emphatically disagree with Moses about cross-dressing. Now, I grew up in the church and emphatically disagree with Moses about anything was always viewed as a sin. But my friends, that expectation for blind compliance with Moses is a recent development within the history of the Bible. We are not called to a surface understanding of scripture, which leads to unenthused obedience. Spiritual maturity is not about following the rules. Spiritual maturity is the continual growing awareness and embrace of God's infinite love. We have a Bible. And this Bible never once discusses transgender identities. However, 
Christians today wield the Bible as a weapon to justify their transphobia. These three passages from 1 Corinthians 11, Genesis chapter 1, and Deuteronomy 22 have been stretched and pulled and manipulated for the agenda of hatred. Even though none of those passages speak about transgender people. Which leads to a sin that the church must repent from. When the Bible was silent, cisgender Christians chose transphobia instead of love. Christians must break this cycle. And the reason we need to break this cycle is because violence and hate crimes against transgender and non-binary people are not declining. Sadly, transphobic violence is on the rise. Since 2013, the human rights campaign tracks the hate crimes against the murder of trans and non-binary people in America. And 2020 tragically saw at least 44 transgender or non-conforming people murdered. This is the highest number of known murders in the last eight years. Since 2013, two-thirds of all known victims of this kind of violence have been black women. Two-thirds. This is a disheartening reality. This violence must be brought to an end. And on their website, the number one thing that the human rights campaign urges all of us to do is to remove any and all anti-transgender stigma in our society. I believe that the first step that we can take as a church to remove that stigma is to celebrate and uphold the stories of transgender persons. And considering the horrible statistics behind the alarming number rate of black trans women, I'd like to close today's teaching by celebrating the excellence of black trans women in our recent history today. And when one begins to speak of the history of black trans women, then the first woman that often comes to mind is, of course, Marsha P. Johnson. The P stands for pay no mind. Marsha was instrumental in the revolutionary Stonewall riots in New York City. These protests led to a reformation of how the LGBT community saw each other and how they organized. It was a year later that the first gay pride marches took place in New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. And there at the beginning of all of this revolution was Marsha P. Johnson. A few years later, she, along with Sylvia Rivera, founded the organization STAR, which provided housing for numerous trans sex workers who had no place to go. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Marsha P. Johnson incarnated that work. However, Marsha P. Johnson was not alone at the Stonewall riots. Another woman, Miss Major Griffin Gracie, also marched on behalf of queer people for civil liberties at the Stonewall riots. After being incarcerated unfairly and seeing how different the law is in pursuing murderers of trans persons, Miss Major Griffin Gracie dedicated her life to working for prison reform. She served as the original executive director for the Transgender Variant Intersex Justice Project and is passionate 
to make sure that transgender persons receive equal protections under the law. The third woman I'd like to talk about is Andrea Jenkins, who made history very recently. All the way back in 1991, she served as a vocational counselor in Hennepin County in the great state of Minnesota. After a decade of serving the county, she was invited to serve as an aide to the Minneapolis City Council to Robert Lilligren. She put in her time, and 17 years later, the city of Minneapolis elected her to the city council. Jenkins became the first openly transgender black woman to serve in public office in the United States of America. Of course, the face of black transgender women today is Laverne Cox, who plays Sophia Bursett on the Netflix series Orange is the New Black. She was the first openly transgender person to appear on the cover of Time magazine, as well as Cosmopolitan magazine. She won a Daytime Emmy in 2015 and has received four nominations for a Primetime Emmy in her career. She once said in an interview with GLAAD, quote, for me, the transgender thing is the reality of my life. It's the reality of my existence. And it's something that I've come to believe is beautiful about me, close quote. And lastly, there is Shea Diamond, who was continually antagonized by the law and repeatedly incarcerated. She was convinced that this would be the rest of her life where society simply would not ever accept her. During an unjust prison sentence, she began to write a song in jail with just her voice called I Am Her. When she got out of prison, she began to sing this song a cappella for just about every justice movement out there. She sang I Am Her for trans rallies, feminist marches, gay rights conventions, and black protests. Eventually, someone offered to record instruments with the song, and it became a sensation. Billboard magazine asked her why she thought this song resonated with so many different people who have been steamrolled by society, and she said, quote, I'm a trans woman of color. I've been through every single spectrum, so I can empathize with everything everybody is going through. If you have not heard Shea Diamond's song, I Am Her, then please Listen to it at the conclusion of this podcast. All five of these women represent the stories of so many other women, so many other trans men, and so many other non-gender conforming people. And to all of my cisgendered brothers and sisters who are listening today, may I invite all of us to spend time learning the stories of transgender persons, to work against any and all anti-trans stigma, and to recognize that we are part of the problem. Recognizing the image of Christ in trans and non-binary people is the work of God, and we must not shelve this work any longer. And to my trans siblings who are listening this morning, and to my siblings who don't feel like they belong in any kind of gender checkbox, may I say to you, that I am truly sorry for the hatred you have suffered from Christianity. This hatred is the very embodiment of the Antichrist, and it is the opposite of what the church is called to be. For all of the violence, the terrible words, and the hatred, on behalf of Christians, I am deeply sorry. 
You are fearfully, perfectly, and wonderfully made. And you bear the image of Christ. You bear the image of Christ in the way you walk, in the way you talk, in the clothes that you wear, in the partner that you love, in the work that you create, and in the face that you have. All of it and all of your life, all of your very being are crafted in God's image. And you have shown me and others the face and the work of God over and over again. So may I say to you also, thank you. Thank you for being who God created you to be. And may all of us finally live up to our calling and recognize Christ everywhere and in everyone. May all of us love with reckless abandon, and may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all gender identities.